Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Weeks of classic films. From 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes! Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... uh, His performance, it's off the charts, but still in reality. Fiendishly gifted. 1981, Sam Raimi Opus, The Evil Dead. Oh, yes, fine choice. Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have. Charade. Oh, Directed by Stanley Donnan. It's a textbook screenplay. It's just effortless, and there's not a wrong note in this movie. Can't say enough great things about it. We'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode of The 430 Movie, wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us now for The 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. This is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. I thought it was a classic femme fatale. Just so much fun. Like that Shakespearean lace in your acting. I said, Gene, what do you want from this character? I want you to just take the character and make it your own. (laughs) (laughs) I had a good time on the film. On day one, the movie was already $15 million over budget. We started this movie without an ending. That's like painting yourself into a corner. I don't think we've ever had a Star Trek captain on our show. Being, as you said, number one on the call sheet, it is a producer's position if you're going to take it seriously. I was so glad they didn't cast me as Lorca. (laughs) (laughs) You famously wrote that script in 12 days. On one level, I wrote the script. And on another level, the story was written by everybody and his brother. New episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen to podcasts, or download the Electric Now app. Keep on trekking. Ingloriously, of course. Inglorious Trexperts, the only podcast for fans with a life, is available every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts, and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. If you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. My new book, Secrets of the Force, is now available in hardcover, digital, and audio from St. Martin's Press. And check out my other great oral histories with Ed Gross of Star Trek, The 50-Year Mission. So say we all, the complete oral history of Battlestar Galactica. And nobody does it better, the complete oral history of James Bond and Spymania. All available in hardcover, paperback, digital, and audio wherever you buy your books. And welcome to the Cartoon Bar Room, where we invite experts and industry professionals to pull up a stool and talk about all things animation. Uh, I am your host, Stephen Melching, and joining me, as always, is your congenial co-host and mine, Ashley Edward Miller. What's happening, Ashley? What is not happening, Steve? Seriously, what's, <laughs> what is not happening? I'm having the strangest out-of-body experience um, because, you know, as some of our listeners know, we did a little show called Dota dragon's blood and a character that we created as a talk to for one of our leads who has no lines except to whistle got turned into an official hero of the game the show was based on and it is the oddest thing for me um it's like i don't know whether to feel like a proud papa Or just to, like, (laughs) doubt my own reality. I'm not sure which. So I have decided 
that is the perfect opportunity to retreat uh, to the warmth and safety of a bottle of alcohol, which means that <laughs> it must be time for the bar room. And it's yes. great timing because we have an amazing, amazing guest who I will give you the honor of introducing. Oh my gosh. Well, it is certainly my honor. I have been a fan of this gentleman's work for probably about as long as I can remember. Uh, he is a legendary comedian. He's an Emmy-winning writer. He's a Grammy nominee. He is a movie writer and director, an author, entrepreneur. I don't know if uh, there's anything this gentleman can't do. It's Dave Thomas, ladies and gentlemen. How are you, Dave? Welcome to the bar room. Well, thanks. Pleasure to be here. Um, what can I say? I love to sit down at the end of the day during happy hour and have a drink with Friends. And I consider you friends because we're having a drink together. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. So uh, what are you drinking there, Dave? It looks tasty. This is called a vodka Negroni. It's vodka, Campari, and a little touch of sweet vermouth. Oh, excellent. That sounds How about amazing. you, Ashley? What, uh, what, have you, what have you poured yourself? Now, okay, I'm going to tell you what I poured myself, but I'm going to tell you what I wish I had poured myself. Because <laughs> this is, in fact, a very special episode of the Cartoon Bar. Uh, what I'm drinking tonight is an 18-year-old Aberlar, a uh, single malt Scotch oh. whiskey. Now, the thing about 18-year-old Scotches is they're not even old enough to be themselves yet. Uh, <laughs> but they're still old enough to be delicious, and that's great. But here's where I blew it, okay? This was my chance. This was my big chance to have a beer with Doug McKenzie. Oh, yes. I searched high, and there is well, no beer in this dojo. <laughs> you know what I would have done if you had done that? I would have got up, gone into the kitchen, and got a beer. Oh, and I God. Have a beer with you. <laughs> that doesn't make it better, Dave, but on, the, on, a, on, on another level, it kind of doesn't make it better. <laughs> it's just, it's just, but you know what? In spirit, literally in spirit, <laughs> I'm having a beer with you tonight, and that that's just amazing. So, um, oh, Steve, what are you drinking? Well, I'm I'm also drinking a scotch. I'm drinking a Glenlivet, but mine is underage. It's only 15. Oh, my God. Oh. Okay. Uh, well, we won't report you. 15? Well, how much was that? 20, 10 bucks. It's like 10 bucks, Chuck. What's that? Cheers. Cheers to you both. Cheers. Cheers. Okay. Well, now, well, thank you for coming to the show, Dave. It's been great having you. <laughs> All right, good night. See you guys later. So I think you know, a lot of times we, you know, we we like to start at the beginning. Uh, uh, tell us how you got your start. It sounds like you moved around a lot growing up before you you settled down. And uh, how did you get involved uh, in the entertainment business? Well, uh, <laughs> when I was in college, I met Marty Short and Eugene Levy. We started doing plays together and bonded as friends, which we, uh, those friendships are still strong. And uh, honestly, I, I, I think that they were my gate into the business. They weren't in the business when I met them. We were all at McMaster, this small college in Canada. And, uh, but we all had big dreams. We all wanted to do this for a living. 
And then they got into a show called Godspell. Yes. Marty and Eugene got in that first and met Paul Schaefer. He was a, the, and Gilda Radner and Andrea Martin and Victor Garper. It was a hell of a cast. And then about, I don't know, six months into that show, they did a cast replacement. And I got a call from Marty and Eugene. I was working on a master's degree in English lit. <laughs> I was in classes. And they said, you got to get down here and audition. So I went down audition and I got into the cast of Godspell. So I was in that show with them. That was my first real show business gig. And uh, after that, everybody kind of languished for a while. Marty did some kind of um, little theater stuff with, you know, song and dance kind of stuff that he's really uniquely capable and equipped to do. Eugene didn't do much. And I went into advertising as a copywriter <laughs> because I couldn't get a job in showbiz. And, um, and, then I, and then they opened Second City in Toronto, and that was the gateway for all of us. It was like all of a sudden people from Ottawa and Toronto and so Gilda Radner and, and um, Joe Flaherty and Brian Dora Murray and um, Dan Aykroyd and Valerie Bromfield and Eugene and John Candy and all these people assembled in this killer cast yes. to do the show, but they, they couldn't get a liquor license and in about three months it closed. Mm. And it was like, oh no, we were all so depressed. It was just like, this was our chance. This, this stage show was the gateway. And then they opened another one and brought in that cast again and started up. And then they opened a show in Pasadena and there was like a couple of openings in the cast. And I got another call from Eugene. Eugene Levy has always been my kind of mentor. He's always been the guy that says, Dave, you're going to get down here. There's an addition. <laughs> Sounds and, like your agent. <laughs> yeah, honestly. So I went down to a second city and I auditioned and I got it. And then once I was in that stage show, um, Lauren Michaels, this was 1975, was picking through Second City to try and find um, people for SNL. And he and coached he, a lot of your cast uh, oh, for yeah, SNL, yeah. didn't he? Sure. He, put, he took Gilda and Danny from our cast. And he took Belushi from the other, from the Chicago cast. And um, Bernie Solomons, the owner of Second City, thought, well, let's do our own show. <laughs> and so that's my mean spirited <laughs> Bernie. But anyway, um, that's what we did. We did SCTV. Oh, I was going to say, um, uh, I'm, we're going to sell your book as well uh, on this show, but uh, Martin Short also wrote a great book called, um, there it is, The Many Lives of Jimmy Layton. Wow. We're definitely going to be talking about that. Uh, but Martin Short wrote a book, I think called, uh, I Must Say, where he talks a lot about the Godspell production and some of those early days uh, from his perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I have that book over here behind me in my bookshelf. <laughs> well, I have another one of your books right here. Ah, the books ah, just ah. keep coming. 
My coffee table book. <laughs> Dave wrote a terrific coffee table book about uh, all about SCTV. It is immense. It's so inc- uh, so comprehensive uh, down to like listings of every sketch in every episode. It's unbelievable. What is it called? And where is it available, Steve? Well, I think it's out of print. Holy shit. It is. That's annoying. Okay. Well, it's not available anywhere except Steve's house. No, it's available on eBay. You can get anything on eBay. Yeah. That's right. eBay, probably the Amazon marketplace. I'm sure you can pick up a used copy somewhere. That's right. And if you're an SCTV fan, it's an in, indispensable resource. So let's talk a little bit about SCTV. So um, uh, you, you decided to put on your own show, which I think in a lot of important ways was a better show than SNL. It made, didn't have nearly the longevity that SNL has, but it, you created such a terrific format um, that SNL could never come close to. Uh, what can you tell us about the origins of the show? You came on as a writer and a performer. Yeah. Um, I was in this little room at the Fire Hall Theater where Second City Stage was done when SCTV was, SCTV was conceived. And there was a director for Second City called Del Close. And Del was the guy who came up with the idea of the little television station that presents its programming day. And that was pretty smart. I was impressed with that idea. I remember I was there when he came up with that. And then the guy who made it work was Harold Ramis because he was our head writer for the first season. Harold was very smart and he knew how to kind of package and put this together. And, um, but anyway, uh, Candy, myself, Gene Levy, Joe Flaherty, Andrew Martin, and Catherine O'Hara were the cast, but we were also the writers. Mm-hmm. And um, we did that show uh, for one season, and it was syndicated in the U.S. in 48 markets. Were those the 30-minute 30, the 30 episodes at yes. that point? Yeah. that's right. And we did three seasons of 30-minute episodes. The first two seasons were on, on global TV in the U.S., Sorry, Global TV in Canada and uh, in syndicated stations, about 48 markets in the U.S. Not a lot. That's a very small spread. Well, and, I remember my parents watching the 30-minute episode when we were living in Hawaii. And I, just, I still remember a sketch. The first sketch I ever saw so vividly was your fish police sketch. With the pocket fishermen, stop or I'll cast <laughs> this fish that was stealing jewelry from people. Yeah, yeah that 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 show, the thirty-minute show, went for three seasons. The two seasons on global TV in Canada, and then Global dropped it. And then Andrew Alexander, the producer of Second City, got uh, this crazy doctor in Edmonton to finance the show along with the CBC and they put it together in Edmonton. And that's, that's where SCTV that became the network 90 NBC show was really born. And in that third season, Rick Moranis joined the cast and it was really, it really started to grow. Oh yeah. 
And I just want to take a minute to talk about the brilliance of the conceit of this show, because SNL is basically just a collection of sketches and they will sometimes, you know, have a, a, an ongoing sketch that, you know, they'll, they'll uh, do different iterations of it over the seasons. Um, and they'll do, they have sort of their standard things, but SCTV, you had this great framework of this little dinky TV station presenting as broadcast day where you had both a through line that took place at the TV station with a whole cast of characters that were, you know, the station manager and the, and the different personalities and, and crew members at the station, uh, combined with all of the programming that you'd see on the show, whether it's fake commercials or PSAs or uh, promos, variety shows, news broadcasts, talk shows, kid shows, game shows, movies of the week, soap operas, late night horror. And it was created this great framework to, to hang all those sketches on. Did you find that format as a writer um, more challenging to come up with these through lines or did that help you create uh, a night? I mean, 90 minutes is nothing to sneeze at. That's a lot of programming to do every week. Well, okay. We were doing the little programming day of the small television station in the 30 minute format mm -hmm. and it was challenging, but it was fun. And it, and it, they, it gave us really a direction to go for our stuff. And our, our playing field was television, which in the 70s, it was a television world. You know what I mean? It wasn't an internet world yet. It wasn't, a, you know, Instagram world. It was a television world. And um, that was fun. When we got the 90-minute show, it was like, holy shit. We, <laughs> we had bit off more than we could chew. It was so much work to fill that many minutes. Yeah. And, um, and I remember we, you know, there were some cast members, most notably Eugene and Catherine, who wanted the cast to be the writers for the whole show. And I was the head writer at that point, And I said, that's not doable. Yes. We, can't, we can't, there aren't, you will never be able to write a 90 minute after commercial stuff. Uh, it was like 40 or 50 something minutes, but it, but it wasn't 90, but it was still a lot of work. And well, I mean, writing and then shooting all that stuff and yeah. doing costumes and locations and all that that goes into production. And unlike SNL, which was a very kind of a finite uh, structure where, cause I did the new show, uh, between Lauren Michaels' two iterations in SNL. And he shot it exactly like SNL. And so you were limited in SNL by the number of sets that you could load in to Studio 8H in Rock Center. And in SCTV, we had no such <laughs> limits. We, it was a set over here, a set over there, a set over here. There was one point... I know when the Carpenters quit because they were buried like in Karen sawdust. Carpenter, but like the, the people yeah. who built the sets. Got it. Exactly. Okay. Not the emaciated not the, singer. Not the band. But, okay. But the emaciated Carpenters that were working on SCTV, they were buried in sawdust in the back and they said, we're not building any more sets. Fuck you. We're done for a while. So, um, 
we had to, I remember Andrew Al, Alexander got me together with the cast, but as the head writer, the burden was mine. And it was like, we got to come up with material for existing sets. Mm-hmm. So it's hard enough to come up with funny stuff, but then you got to come up with funny stuff that's structured on sets that have already been built. That makes it even harder. It was, there were always challenges like this at SCTV. So here's my question for for you as, as, as a creative person. Okay. So, so you started as a copywriter and then you kind of found your way into this insane cast of people who very clearly never went on to do anything with their careers. Um, (laughs) You, you got into SCTV, it went from 30 minutes to 90 minutes. Now, there it seems to me that it implies two transitions. And I'm incredibly curious, yeah, just, just about how aware or not aware you were. But was there a moment when you thought to yourself, oh, this is real. I'm not a copywriter anymore. And, that, and this is amazing. And this is like, this, this, this isn't even a job, right? But then getting into SCTV when suddenly it's 90 minutes, when you went back to, oh God, this is real and it's a job, right? Like, because I know that I've sort of had that arc in this town. So for you, like, was there, were there moments that made you go like, oh, okay, this is, this is my new reality. This is just what it is. Absolutely. That sums it up perfectly because, you know, um, one thing I learned in advertising was that you can say a lot in 30 seconds. And mm-hmm. so that made me the commercial parody king of SCTV when we first started out. And I, and I unabashedly jumped into that area. But that said, um, the show became bigger and bigger and bigger, and it, and it became more of a challenge. And it got to the point where some weeks it was genuinely terrifying. <laughs> because it, we thought we're not going to do this <laughs> mm-hmm. and when you think about that and the platform is a network US network television show the embarrassment level would be pretty high if you didn't do it so it was very challenging and there were points where you know I I looked at it and I thought Okay, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if we can do this this week. We would be working when we were in Edmonton. We were literally working seven days a week, Hmm. and that's really hard. People will say, "Oh, yeah, we work seven days a week," but honestly, you sit down with people that work seven days a week and you ask them about that. That is really hard. And although we were working on what we love to do, it's still work when you're doing it every day. And, and for all, all those people that say, oh, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Bullshit. Bullshit. <laughs> it's really bullshit. And so, you know, we would be, I remember coming back to the hotel where we were staying with Rick many times because Rick and I, by the third season, developed a partnership as writers. And we would go, wouldn't it be great to just go to bed right now? <laughs> but we couldn't because we had to write something before we went to bed for the next day. 
And some of the stuff that we wrote, I got to be honest with you, was not that good. And <laughs> but you I, got it I've, done. I've got to yeah. get done. I've seen it and I look at it and I kind of go, okay. And then the other <laughs> stuff was really bizarre. Here's, a, here's an example of how bizarre it got. When I saw the movie Deliverance, I was horrified by Nick Beatty's rape. When he gets raped by the hillbillies. And it's just like, oh my God, that's terrible. And so I... Um, Rick and I had this idea. We had these two characters that we played that were pig characters. We had pig nose. And they were, it was called Carl's Cuts. It was Carl and Fred's Cuts. And we were um, butchers and film editors. So we cut meat and head cheese, and we also cut film. And the idea that I had one night when Rick and I were riding in the hotel was that um, the line in the movie that Ned Beatty says, or the hillbilly says, to him, get down on all fours and squeal like a pig. I thought it'd be funny if we were pigs, the line would be, get down on all fours and squeal like a man. So we did this whole sketch based on that one thing. That's very esoteric and very sort of, you know, uh, unusual. And and I said to Marty Short, who has just joined the cast, I said, will you, because I always teased him that he, when he pulled his hair back, that he looked like the mountain boy in Deliverance. <laughs> and I said, Marty, will you play the mountain boy? And he said, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. About a, about a month ago, I was Googling on YouTube and I found this sketch, the Deliverance parody. I hadn't seen it for years. And I watched it, I laughed my head off because it was so self-indulgent and so bizarre that I don't know who in the hell would like that sketch, but it would be a very, very small group of people, you know. So that was what happened on SCTV, was that it became, by virtue of the volume of work that we had to do, it became us late at night coming up with really bizarre, esoteric things that made us laugh. But who knew if it was a real laugh or if it was a laugh inspired by tiredness, <laughs> sleep deprivement. <laughs> sleep deprivement. Right, exactly. Now, speaking of esoteric and bizarre and self-indulgent, there's one sketch that I have to know the backstory on. And this is, a, this is a movie, another movie spoof that when I saw it back in, I think it was on in 1981, I had not seen the film that you were spoofing, but it was still hilarious because it's just a funny sketch. Um, but it's based on a movie that until very recently was not even available on DVD or Blu-ray. It was released on VHS tape, which is how I saw a, a friend of mine made a, a DVD from this VHS tape called The Oscar uh, starring Stephen Boyd, Tony Bennett, Elkie Summer, Milton Berle, Ernest Borgnine. Now, I have a gigantic poster for this movie hanging in my living room right now. A uh, beautiful stone litho painted poster for the Oscar. And you guys did a spoof of it called The Nobel, in which you played the lead, the Frank Fane, Frankie Fane character, uh, Mikey Maxwell, and you transposed it into the medical world from the acting world. 
how in the hell did you guys decide to spoof that movie that, you know, was it just on late night TV and you, and you spoofed it so perfectly. You had lines of dialogue like right out of the movie. We loved that movie. Uh, we all did. Joe Flaherty, his brother, Paul, myself, Rick Brannis. We loved that movie. We, yeah. we thought it was hilarious. And we thought, do you remember Tony Bennett in that movie? Absolutely. Heine Kelly, the Irish Jew. Uh, Tony Tony was so bad as an actor that he was hilarious. And we, we, and Stephen Boyd played this sort of, he was a strange actor. You know, he was, he was um, in Ben-Hur, remember? Yes. Yes. He was Masala in Ben-Hur. And Stephen Boyd was this very, very bizarre character who uh, had an acting career that it was short-lived, but he had a kind of a meteoric rise for a while there. And the Oscar kind of typified that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it was just sort of like when he, when they announced the winners and, and it's like, ladies and gentlemen, the winner is Frank. And he jumped up. <laughs> And it's like Sinatra, not Frankie Fane, Frank Sinatra. And he does this very stiff clapping thing. That was worthy of parody. And when we saw that. into his chair, clapping. When we saw that moment, we thought, okay, all right, this is worthy of parody. Let's go for it. Yeah, you played the surgeon that wins the Nobel. It's just uh, just tremendous. And, and I developed a whole new appreciation for that sketch once I, I finally had seen the movie. And by, by the way, if you want to revisit it, there's a beautiful Blu-ray edition of it out now with a great audio commentary by Patton Oswalt and a couple other people where they give you the whole history uh, of the film. So let me ask you. All right, so yeah. you're you're looking at the Oscar and you go, that's worthy of a parody, right? You're watching Deliverance uh, and um, and terrible things, terrible things happening. You're thinking that that's worthy of a parody, right? Like there are all of these things that are going through your head and you're thinking like parody or not parody, that's funny. So what makes something funny? Well, nobody ever sets out to make a bad movie. Yeah. <laughs> I think it just happens magically. And it's like, I think there's a very, very slim line between a good movie and a bad movie. And when it makes that turn, I want to be there. I want to see that. (laughs) I want to be able to parody that. And that's where we were with SCTV. There were a lot of movies that we couldn't touch because they weren't, they weren't worthy of parody. They hadn't, they hadn't made that turn. You know what I mean? But I do think that um, a movie like the Oscar made that turn with the scene that I just described with Stephen Boyd applauding and, and a bunch of other stuff, including, you know, a Tony Bennett's performance. Hey, Frankie, you're never going to make it to the top. You're just a kind you're just a bum like the rest of us. You know, his, is acting He's in sitting it. sitting on a glass mountain called success. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was, You're nothing but garbage. He was so <laughs> funny in that. 
We had to have him on our show. No. Yes. Tony Bennett came on SCTV as a guest. And he was on the Bob and Doug McKenzie set. <laughs> and um, Amazing. God bless him. He was just wonderful. And his son was his manager. And he said that we helped Tony, because at that time, SCTV had some creds. And it was like, it had won a couple Emmys. And it was like, it was like, People were watching the show. When Tony Bennett casted, his son said that we helped Tony reinvigorate his career. Well, I couldn't have been happier because I thought, well, there's a guy whose career should be reinvigorated, you know? And so he was one of many musical guests that we had on the show. Now I'm drifting off your question here. I know that. That's okay. And But, you know... All the people that we had on as musical guests, we tried to find them interesting and a unique, unique way to use them so that it wasn't just like, and now this band, and now that band. We tried to incorporate them into a sketch and make them players in the scenes with us, and they loved that. They loved that to a man. And, I, I mean, I think, that, I think that more than anything else was what made our show different as a variety show is because we didn't just throw to the musical guests. We pulled them into a sketch and sometimes we did it well. Sometimes we didn't do it so well, but you know, that's the way it goes. And, and now I can't remember what the question was. <laughs> the question. So there you go. <laughs> make something funny. Um, but you know, it's a uh, kid rock almost by definition. Funny, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but like, who's a musician who isn't funny? I think if somebody takes themselves too seriously, right, they're right. funny, right? Yeah, they're ripe for parody. You know, Bono, Sting, yeah, anybody yeah. whose name is one word <laughs> is funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's the great thing about those those uh, those movies that are about to make that turn. Like the the cast, they always have the incredible fearlessness and courage and they're just pushing it and pushing it and pushing it until it becomes almost self-parody without realizing it. Yeah. I mean, when I heard that there was an artist named Weekend, I thought, okay, if we're doing SCTV now, we would do Weekend. Sorry. (laughs) We would definitely do Weekend. (laughs) Now, uh, Obviously, you you are one half of the the iconic duo of Bob and Doug McKenzie, which were so popular on SCTV that they spawned not only a Grammy-nominated album, The Great White North, which, um, boy, that was a tough year at the Grammys, man. You were up against uh, George Carlin and Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor. I know. But that's great company to be a part of. And and your, your takeoff uh, uh, music, uh, your song with Geddy Lee is part of my annual Christmas rotation to this day. Um, and then, of course, a movie. And I know Ashley wants to ask you about the movie. Strange Brew. Okay, so here's the, the question I've had about Strange Brew for years and Bring years and years. Uh, when you guys were trapped in that big vat, of beer and you had to drink your way out. Did you have to use stuntmen to do all the drinking? <laughs> uh, 
No, no stuntmen were used. We did it ourselves. You guys are like the Tom Cruise of beer drinking movies. That's that's fantastic. That's right. That's right. Did you drink all your own beer? <laughs> oh my god. That's it. That's my question. I just gotta know. Um, <laughs> but you not only co-starred in that, you co-directed it with Rick Moranis and co-wrote it with uh, Rick Rick Moranis and Steve DeJarnat. Uh, what was? How did this come to be? And how did you? Um, how did, what was the process like of making that film? Well, okay, here's how the script started. We were under contract to NBC, and at that time, John Candy and Joe Flaherty were doing a show uh, for a movie for Universal called Going Berserk. And when the producers found out that actors are starting to be pulled away from the TV show to the movie business, they wanted to put a stop to that. So they said to us when we got our offer, Rick and I, Rick and I couldn't write Strange Brew, so we hired Steve DeJarnett to write it. He did a good job, but unfortunately, he didn't really capture Bob and Doug because Bob and Doug were improvised characters, and it was really mm-hmm. difficult to, to write Bob and Doug if you weren't Bob and Doug. And so... He didn't catch that. And um, so I'm sorry. So would you say did you does that mean those sketches on SCTV were largely improvised that you went all, into it with a concept? Okay. They were all improvised. Yeah. There was not a moment of script in any of them. <laughs> and, when you were on the ice skates and you were like pretending to fight with the lightsabers, right? Like Yeah. Was that improvised? <laughs> or no. Yes. That's awesome. That was improvised. That makes my and, <laughs> and here's the thing we we didn't think the um, two minute shows on SCTV were important because they were filler they were basically filler for the Canadian show so we Rick and I would get there probably usually on a, the end of the week on a Friday or something and we would um get to the Bob and Doug set. The rest of the cast and crew would be sent home. The um, floor director and the AD and the um, and, a co- and one camera and a switcher stayed and we just shot a bunch of Bob and Dougs. And we would, <laughs> they were all exactly two minutes long. So we had to like we'd get the count from the count in from the guy five four three two one go and the that was the that was the sort of in and it it gave us time to think of what the fuck we were gonna say and we didn't know what we were gonna say and we um. Most of those were garbage. I mean, we would shoot 10 or 15 of them, and maybe two would be good, mm-hmm. and the rest of them got thrown out. To this day, I wish that I could have copies of the ones that were thrown out, because I'll bet you that would be like some kind of a marketing opportunity. But anyway, <laughs> I don't have and, um And then when the movie came up, it was like, all right, 
So we went to Andrew Alexander, the producer of Second City, and we said we could offer uh, to write a movie. And um, he said, well, you can't. You can't write a movie. So he said, okay. So we had a hit album at that point, which had sold platinum and double platinum. And so we thought, all right, we'll use some of our record royalties to hire a real screenwriter in Hollywood. So we hired Steve DiGiorno. So he wrote the script. It wasn't, it wasn't right for Bob and Doug. It had some of the elements of the sort of Hamlet story, the Brewmeister Smith and things like that. But it didn't really capture the essence of Bob and Doug. And um, I said to, um, we put this, we, we paid Steve to write the script. Steve wrote the script. And then we read it and we went, well, it's not right for Bob and Doug. We got we to gotta either, either fix this or get another writer. And we weren't allowed contractually to write it because of our <laughs> exclusive deal with NBC and, and Andrew Alexander. What happens is our agent at that time was CAA. Well, they sent the script out on Friday to everybody. And by Wednesday, we had a deal of MGM. And we, we didn't want to deal on this script. So it was like, oh, God, no, what are we going to do? And Rick and I were sort of agonizing, and we were like, okay, we have to figure this out. And um, he said uh, he didn't want to do this movie. And I said, well, this is an opportunity. We should try to. So I said, well, let me take a stab at rewriting this script. So I started rewriting. And I got to about page 30 or so. And Rick came over and he said, let me see what you got. And I showed him what I had. And part of it was this opening with Bob and Doug in the theater where they destruct their own movie. <laughs> and, and it was like, that's typical Bob and Doug, right? <laughs> and so anyway, he, he said, oh, okay, okay. I get this. I'm in. So let's do this. So then we start working on it. And that's where it began. That's amazing. And, and Bob and Doug lived on like, you know, far beyond, uh, I think probably like any expectation you guys had when you created those characters. I mean, like well, like into, uh, into the aughts. Uh, yeah. I mean, we were shocked amazing. by that. We were <laughs> shocked because it just kept going and going. We did like pizza hut spots, Jiffy Lube spots, uh, Molson spots. And then we ended up doing brother bear as the voices of Bob and Doug McKenzie. The and bear's just, name is Took. It just hit me. Yeah. <laughs> How did it take this long to hit me that the bear's name is Took? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a joke grenade. It takes like 20 years. Okay, awesome. But at least it went off. That's the important thing. It's like one of those mines that kids step on. Like, you know, it's just like, oh, it was unexploded. I just, I just exploded it. It's great. That's amazing. And there were editorial cartoons all the time about Bob and Doug in Toronto papers and other newspapers about, and it was just, Bob and Doug were, became icons of Canada. 
And we were very flattered by that. We, we thought, Jesus, we didn't ever think of this. We didn't ever think this would happen. And it, I'll tell you the point at which it reached an absurd conclusion is there are now life-size statues of Bob and Doug <laughs> in Edmonton at this like um, ice palace where the Edmonton, Edmonton oil pl- oilers play. And it was like, oh my God. It's just like... <laughs> this little thing you did in a lark. Yeah. 30 years ago, turned into a colossal waste of time. That's okay. amazing. So, so, uh, so coming out of uh, SCTV and the Bob and Doug phenomenon, you continued to work uh, both as an actor in movie. You had a very memorable role in Stripes uh, and uh, you, on on television and shows like the Larry Sanders Show. I think memorable in Stripes is a bit of a reach, but okay. Ah, no, that was a great scene. You were the MC in the Mud Wrestling Palace. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> Uh, but you continue to work as a writer as well, and uh, you know on shows like Race Under Fire, and and shows that I I would never have expected someone with your uh, public background. Shows like Bones and The Blacklist. How did you get involved in live action television writing and dr- dramatic television writing? Well, I I moved into drama because comedy changed. Mm-hmm. Comedy became this politically correct environment. And you couldn't do anything in comedy. And I thought, well, forget it. I'm out of here. So I moved into drama. And it was fun. I really enjoyed it. And writing the procedural stuff really just required doing your research on Google. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I had fun doing that. I loved my time on Bones. Bones Mm -hmm. was a really sweet experience. It was just... Wonderful. I really like that show. And I think at the time I was watching it, I just, I, I'm sure I saw your name on the screen and it just never clicked that it was that same Dave Thomas that right. I watched on SCTV. Who would think? <laughs> Doug McKenzie is a consultant. So the consulting producer thing, like that's the thing that I love, right? So that, to me, the consulting producer gig is the best gig in Hollywood, right? You're the one guy in their writer's room who gets to go home, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great gig. <laughs> it's really a wonderful gig and I enjoyed it and had so much fun and now since we're an animation podcast uh, let's we? turn and pivot a little bit and talk about your animation work which is prodigious uh, you've done a ton of animation voice work on shows like Raw Tunage uh, Camp Candy, Animaniacs Bobby's World uh, Disney's Legend of Tarzan, Mission Hill, Justice League, uh, Pound Puppies, The Simpsons, King of the Hill, and a show that was uh, one of the writers on was a good friend of ours, uh, Fast and Furious Spy Racers. Oh, how did who's you, your how, friend? Uh, Mitch, uh, Mitch Iverson. Iverson. Oh, okay. Uh, he worked for us, uh, worked for Ashley on uh, Dota Dragon's Blood. Great guy. Um, how did you get involved in animation uh, voice work? Uh, a friend of mine, Dan Graney, who worked on The Simpsons, called me up and said he was starting an animation studio and um, with a partner, and he wanted to know if I wanted to do that with him. I'd never done animation before. And I thought, all right, well, maybe that'll be fun. So I hopped on. And oddly, 
Dan and the other partner got into a bit of a conflict and Dan left. Hmm. So now it was just me and his partner, Andy Bain, and a bunch of animators that we'd hired that we were trying to find work for. And it was just, it was, it was a uphill battle for the first couple of years. And then around 2000, 2001, it kicked in and it was just like, um, we first, we, the first job we got was this show called Slacker Cats. Mm-hmm. And then after that, um, we did a ton of corporate work and then we were able to sell, um, a Bob and Doug showed the global TV in Canada. And then we were able to do, um, a show for MTV called Popzilla. And, uh, and in the interim period, we got hired by the guy who created Beanie Babies, mm. Ty Warner, mm, mm-hmm. to create a virtual world for Beanie Babies. So we had to hire a bunch of programmers and we created a virtual world. That started out as a started out as a hundred thousand dollar job, became a $300,000 job, $500,000 job, and ultimately it became a multi-million dollar job. And at one point at Animax, we had about, that was the company I founded with mm-hmm. Graney and, and um, Andy Bain. At one point, we had about, about 110 people working there. That's a, that's a pretty big group. It was a lot of work. It was hard work, too, because it, it required managing people. And um, I'm not, I, I don't like doing that. Mm. You know, I feel like a super in a, in a, a apartment complex. <laughs> you know, there's a toilet up in 405 plug. Here, here, here's your plunger. Go up and fix it. And I, I, I didn't like that very much but it, but i had the i had the best writing office at animax animax that i've ever had and it was a really sweet spot and we wrote all kinds of stuff there and sold other shows to, i did a hbo pilot there i did a three shows for tbs there i did a lot of stuff there that's great so as as that's incredible. So your your as far as uh, your voice acting work goes, how do you, as an actor, uh, how do you create your your develop your character's voice on an animated show? Do you rely on the script? Do you see artwork that helps you figure out what your uh, voice is going to be like for a character? It's a combination. I mean, you got to see the art. Yeah, and then you want to work with the person who who's the showrunner and go, how about this? How about this? How about this? You try different things. You, For Spy Racers, my friend Tim Hedrick mm-hmm. was the showrunner on that. And um, he had an idea of what my voice should be before I even came in there. And then he says, why don't you do this? Like, All right. And it was like butter. And so there are other shows I've done. I remember when I did The Simpsons, I had to do this kind of uh, prohibition character 
And they said, we need somebody who's like, and I said, well, what about kind of a uh, Robert Stack character, kind of <laughs> Elliot Ness character? And they said, oh, that's perfect. Yeah, do that. <laughs> so that's what I did for that, you know? So it's a building thing with the writers and with the um, artists to kind of take a look at the image of what it is you're doing and then come up with a voice that fits that. So how do you, uh, so look, not everybody is Tim Hedrick and knows kind of exactly what it is that, that he wants when you walk into that room. Like, do you do prep ahead of time or do you sort of find it on the page and just kind of work with it on the page? Like, does that, does that change when there are other actors in the booth with you? And I realize that through COVID, like there haven't been actors really in booths together, but. I'm a really lazy performer. Awesome. <laughs> and so I'll try to find it in the room. Mm-hmm. And when Rick and I were doing Brother Bear, we already knew that what the voices were, but we didn't know what we were going to say. <laughs> but we did know that we could improvise together as Bob and Doug. So we were able to put together something that worked for them and I think helped them create the characters because they weren't fully formed at that time. They had an idea of what these mooses were like, but they didn't have a real lockdown view of it. There are other characters that I did, like Animaniacs, where I just came in and did a voice. And I, I didn't even do any prep at all for that. So, you know, um, I did a thing for Tom Kenny, a friend of mine. Oh, yes. SpongeBob. Oh, right. He's but great. he did a show called Cat Dog. Oh, yes. And I did some voices on Cat Dog. And um, and it was basically Tom saying, do this, do that, do this, do that. And I went, all right, fine. So you get guided through this, you know? This isn't something that is either, um, it's, not a, um, it's, it's not a method acting thing where you come in yeah. and you do your voice. There's always somebody there who's, saying, no, no, do it like this. No, a little more like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In my, in my experience, you know, if an actor comes in and has a really clear idea of what their character is going to sound like and they perform it, there's that fear of that, like, well, what if the showrunner doesn't, just doesn't like it or the, there's an That's executive right. that doesn't like it? Then you're back to square one. So why go through uh, an intense amount of preparation and, and, and really get into it only to have your your creative hopes dashed in the room and everything falls away. You mean like working in Hollywood? (laughs) (laughs) You're your dreams crushed? It's like, what? That never happens. So as we, as we get to the conclusion of this episode, there's a couple of last questions uh, I'd love to ask you about. One of them is uh, a project that was announced several years ago, and there hasn't been a lot of word about it since. And that's the SCTV reunion uh, that, or the documentary that Martin Scorsese was, make, uh, was making. Uh, can you tell us anything about, uh, about that and, and when it, we might finally see it? I have no idea when we're going to see it yeah. because uh, Scorsese is still editing it. Mm-hmm. Now, is he actively editing it as we speak? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think is so. Is he cutting film yeah. and head cheese? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I do think that 
um, well, he's a very busy guy. He's got a lot of stuff yeah. on the go. So it'll, it'll be when he gets to it. And um, we, we may still shoot some more stuff. That's all up, up in the air right now. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was a interesting experience. He's a great guy. And we put together basically a, a bunch of clips of us talking about the background of SCTV, but didn't do any sketches. Mm. And that was something that I know Scorsese always wanted to do. So like new new sketches or recreations of old sketches? New sketches. Mm-hmm. So that's still out there. We mm-hmm. may still do that. But I gotta hand it to Ted Sarandos. He's a very patient guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like two years or three years and he's still waiting for his cut. Yeah. So I had a lot of Irishmen to deal with. That's right. That's right. Um, You've done so many things in your career. You were, and and all of your careers, my God, like we said at the top, right? Copywriter, written sketch comedy. You've written films. You've acted, improv, directed, produced, created an animation studio, worked as a voice actor. Um, I mean, just everything. You're a dessert topping, you're a floor wax, you're, you're all <laughs> of that. And at one point, you know, we were kind of mocking the idea that uh, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. Like, if somebody said, okay, Dave, one of those things that you did, you have to pick one. And that's what you're going to do. Like, that's the thing. That's the kid that you love the most, right? It's like, it's the, you know, when you are as, as wildly and broadly talented as, as you are, it's like the Sophie's Choice, right? Like, which kid, uh, which kid do you love the most? Which one of those kids, right? Which one of those Daves do you think you love the most? Would you most want to be forever? Okay. <laughs> Uh, in 2002, I did a movie in Canada called White Coats. It was a hospital comedy that I wrote and directed. And I put together a young cast of people. And that was probably the most fun that I ever had in my career. And it was just, it was an amazing experience. And these, these young kids were great. They were just so much fun to work with. And, and they've all gone on and had careers beyond this movie. But I had a wonderful time working with them. So there was, you know what I mean? When you go off to do a film or a TV show and you're on location, that becomes a world of its own. It, it's sort of like going away to camp when you were a kid. And it doesn't have um, the reality of home. It has another reality that you're in. And this show that I did called White Coats, it had another reality. And it was so much fun to be there, so much fun to work with these young people. I don't think I ever had a better time in my life. So really, it's about the collaboration. 
right? Like oh, that's where sure. the fun is. Yeah. There's one funny moment where Dave Foley was, I cast him in a, and <laughs> as one of the uh, doctors. And we were, I, I would, I, when I directed it, I would let the actors look at the playback. If they wanted to do it again, go ahead. I don't care. And um, Dave Foley looked at the playback and he saw, and he went, oh, God. And I said, what? What, what, what is it? What, what did you see? What's wrong? He said, no, 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 no. He said, it's just, there was a young actor in that show who was a decade younger than him. It was sort of like a young version of Dave Foley. And his name was <laughs> Peter Oldring. And he said to me, when I think of myself, I think I look like Peter. When I see myself on camera, I realize I look more like you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> and, it de- and it depresses me. And it was like... Dave is about a decade younger than me, and Peter was about a decade younger than Dave. And that's the story of film. It's yeah. about young people. It's not about old yeah. people. It's about young yeah. people. And I thought that was hilarious. I think that the young people help keep us young in a way. It's always great to bring in a young person or, you know, I, I try to... Um, sacrifice them on our altar. yes. I try to make time to to meet with a handful of uh, aspiring writers every year uh, over coffee or Zoom and to just talk about the business and 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 what they hope to do and and it's really great when to to see them you know blossom and 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 find their own way uh, in this business. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Now before we go, the last question I have to ask you about, of course, is your new novel that you held up earlier, The Many Lives of Jimmy Layton. There it is. With Max that you Allen co-wrote, Collins. Co-wrote with the great Max Allen Collins. Now, how did this book come about? And what can you tell us about it? You guys are going to love this. this. You guys are going to love this. So Max and I were introduced by Tom Kenny, SpongeBob. Ah, yep. So that's how we got together. And... um. I had written three chapters of something that I wasn't able to really sell as a TV show, but I thought, well, maybe I'll write as a book, but I probably never would have finished it. And Max asked, I had a nice chat with him on the phone, thanks to Tom Kenny. And uh, Max said, well, let me read what you got. And so I sent it to him. And he liked it, and he said, I like this. He said, I'll help you get a publisher. I'll help you get a book agent. But what I'd rather do is write it with you. And I said, well, that's a win-win for me because I've never written a novel. (laughs) And you've written over 100 novels. So, yes. all right, let's do it. Bring it on. So we started writing together. And it was great. It was a great collaboration. And he became a good friend. Awesome. I love it. Now, uh, where the book just came out uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think, the end of October. On Amazon. Uh, On Amazon. Is it, uh, it looks like it's available in physical form as a a hardback. Is it also uh, digitally for for those that use the the Kindle and whatnot? That's right. It's available on Kindle for the shockingly low price of (laughs) $3.99. And as a hardback, 
as a actual novel with a shockingly low price of $8.99. Actual dead trees there. Dead trees. Well, we (laughs) kept it to a minimum because we emphasized the dirt. Does this, uh, without knowing anything about the book, uh, uh, what can you tell us? What's the book about? Give us a little tease. So this is a story about a a thief from South Boston who's on the run from a Vietnamese drug lord that he owes $5,000 to. And he crosses the river. (laughs) So it's a comedy. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) He crosses the river to get to Cambridge and gets himself a Harvard sweatshirt, tries to blend in. But he needs money. So he breaks into the house of this physicist. He doesn't know it's a physicist. And this guy is running a quantum experiment of the many worlds interpretation by Hugh Everett III in his basement. And when this small-time thief connects these cables from quantum batteries to this gizmo that it becomes the steering wheel of a car in Chicago, a thousand miles away. And he enters another version of his life. And then he starts hopping from one version of his life to another. And what makes this kind of a fun thing for Max and I, because Max is a mystery writer, Max is a mystery writer, um, is that as, as he connected the cables... He got shot in the head, not killed, but shot in the head and wounded. And he's in a coma, which is why he's hopping from one world to another and not landing in one and staying there. And um, and so two cops investigate the shooting of Jimmy Layton. So we interweave these Jimmy going into different versions of his life with the cops doing an investigation into who shot Jimmy Lane and bring them together at the end. So I was very, I was pleased with this. I thought this is a great, great fun thing. And it would be a fun thing for people to read. And um, so that's the, that's the book right there. So uh, it does, uh, is this a standalone or do you think there'll be future installments in the story of Jimmy Lane? I say never say never. Okay. Well, uh, anything else uh, that we can help you plug uh, besides the book? You should go buy the book. You, we should uh, all bug uh, Martin Scorsese about this uh, documentary. Uh, you should all go to uh, Amazon and buy the DVD box sets of SCTV. Uh, you should stream uh, all of Dave's shows that he's starred and written on. You should go onto eBay and look for the SCTV coffee table book. You should. And you can go into. <laughs> My website, DaveThomas.com, and it'll give you like a nice little synopsis of everything. Awesome. Well, that's just fantastic. Thank you so much, Dave. What an enormous pleasure. uh, For coming on to our show and chatting with with us for an hour. Um, Our sound engineer is Bill Ritter and Mark Rivera. Our producer is Natalie Muscali. Our co-producers are Peter Holmstrom and Zach Raggetts. Our video editor is Dylan Middlebrook. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing and rating us in the Apple Store. You can also check out our sister podcast, The 430 Movie, in which a group of industry professionals curate a fantasy theme week of classic movies. The Inglorious Trexperts, the ultimate Star Trek podcast, 
and the best movies never made about films that never saw the light of a projector bulb. You can watch all these podcasts and much more on the free Electric Now video streaming app. Download it today at your favorite app store. You can also follow all of these shows on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, do you have a Twitter or an Instagram or anything that you want to plug, Dave? I got a Twitter. Go look for Dave's Twitter. I don't really do much on it, but I have a Twitter. All right. So uh, thanks again uh, for to Dave and uh, on behalf of my uh, co-star, uh, Ashley Miller. Uh, until next time. That's, that's all, all, folks. That's all, folks. <laughs> <laughs> This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.